All right. Exodus chapter 6 is where we are. Um, let's do a quick review of where we've been, and then you can, you can even flip back in your Bible to chapter 1. It's just helpful for us to kind of re-look at the book here. All right. So chapter 1, um, what's kind of the scenario? Kind of introduces us to the situation here. What do we see happening? You can read the headings there. Yeah, Israelites are being oppressed, right? Not, not a good time for them. Um, remember when they came down, they came down, Joseph was the ruler, Jacob brought all of Israel down, things were looking good for Israel, um, God provided, things were bad and, you know, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Um, but here we go, uh, things are looking good, or things are looking really bad now for Israel. Um, and then who's born in chapter 2? So Moses is born, okay? And so we talked about how this is kind of like um, in a play. You've got front stage and you've got backstage. Uh, in front stage, things can look kind of calm and quiet, like nothing's happening. But backstage, people are running all around and changing costumes and things are about to happen, right? Um, and so here, Moses is born. Um, we've got this list of women who are uh, kind of heroes at the beginning. We've got the midwives. We've got uh, Pharaoh's daughter. We've got Moses' sister. We've got Moses' mother um, are all working behind the scenes. God's working through them behind the scenes. And then we get to the end of chapter 2 and we see uh, this verse, 24, and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Okay, so all is not lost. God sees what's happening. Um, and then we get to chapter 3 and what's happening then the burning bush right so who god shows up right so god shows up meets with moses in the burning bush and he has this long conversation chapter three chapter four all is a conversation uh mostly most of chapter four with moses and what's the general gist of the conversation if you're to sum it up what's god want to tell moses Yeah, you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to tell him, let my people go, all right? And Moses' response is, I'm not a good, a good at talking, I need Aaron. And bottom line is, please send someone else, right? That's what he says kind of at the end, please send someone else. Um, then we've got kind of this interesting interaction uh, with Zipporah and circumcision and their son and God. And uh, at the end of all this, Moses goes to the people, tells them everything that God wanted him to tell them, and the people believed Moses and bowed their heads and worshipped, is what it says. So things are looking up at the end of chapter 4, but then chapter 5, oh, it all goes back down again, doesn't it? Because what, is, what does Pharaoh say when Moses goes and says, let my people go? He says no, right? And what else? Yeah, not only... Can you not go, but it's going to get a little bit harder now. I want you to, you're going to have to make your bricks with no straw, okay? All right, and that brings us to our passage for today. So we're going to start reading in Exodus chapter 5, verse 20, because that kind of get, helps to give us the flavor of where chapter 6 comes from. Um, and just a quick note, that if you're using your phone as your Bible, that's great. 
If you're using your phone as your distraction device, that's not as great. So let's all, all be together and uh, put the phone away if it's just a distraction. That's why we do have the paper Bibles. That's why I always encourage you to bring your paper Bibles because, like I say before, your Bible that has paper is not, doesn't have Tetris in it, so it's not as distracting. All right, so starting in chapter 5, verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. So this is the uh, Israelite foreman. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord did not make myself or the Lord I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall, I, shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am uncirc- have, I'm of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, if you were to keep reading, which we're not going to do in full, you would see that the next part is this long genealogy. These are the heads of the father's houses, the sons of Reuben. And so it traces from Jacob, some of the sons of Jacob. So it's got Reuben and Simeon and then down to Levi. And then when it looks at Levi's sons, it gets to Kohath. And then Kohath's sons, it, one of them is Amram, and then Amram's sons, uh, or Amram uh, and Jacobed, took, uh, had kids, and their sons were Aaron and Moses, okay? And you keep reading, and you get through the gene- genealogy, and you get to verse 26, and it says, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. Okay, so the second half of chapter 6 seems to be something of a giving proof that Aaron and Moses kind of had the right as men of Israel to lead Israel out, okay? Because there might have been some kind of questions out there of, you know, who really is this Aaron and Moses? You know, this Moses guy, he came from the wilderness. Do we really know he's one of us? 
So it's kind of Moses' way of saying, yes, here's the lineage that shows we're of the people of Israel, okay? But our focus is going to be on chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. So if you kind of have that open, that'd be great. 6, 1 through 9. Now, to kind of introduce the subject that we're going to get into, I want to tell a little bit from a book that I read recently, just to show you where my reading level is at these days. How many of you have read The Boxcar Children? Okay. So I'm, I'm reading Boxcar Children, not, not so much for myself, but for my children. Um, and uh, we, we read the second book the other day, Ch- Test Your Trivia. Who knows what the second Boxcar Children book is? Out of like 59 books or 127, I don't know how many have been written. Surprise Island is what it's called, okay? Surprise Island, okay? Um, and it actually provides kind of a helpful little illustration for us to get us thinking about what this passage is doing here, okay? So in this book, uh, I find it kind of interesting because the first book, the whole idea is they live in this boxcar, um, and they have just like a fantastic life in this boxcar, <laughs> really, um, which is another reason why it's a book and not real life. Um, no adults, they're just like, Hey, we should make a swimming pool. Great. I think they do. Okay, great. That's easy, I guess. Um, and so in the second book, the first book ends with them realizing that their grandfather loves them and they were running away from him and they didn't need to. And now they live in this mansion with their grandfather. And yet I think the whole series was kind of built on this idea of like how intriguing to think about four kids living on their own. Like that's kind of an f- interesting thought. So I think they tried to reproduce it a little bit in the second book. And so the grandfather takes them to this island that he owns and lets them live in the barn on the island, okay? And um, I think it's kind of like boxcar part two, but it's a barn now. And uh, on the island with the children, there's this kind of old fisherman who kind of keeps up the, the island for the grandfather. And the old fisherman has acquired a new handyman, uh, and his name, they call him Joe, okay? And he's kind of mysterious. We don't really know who Joe is, but we know he's really nice. He's pretty kind, and, and he's helpful. Um, he's just a handyman, okay? Well, so as the book goes, you know, they have various adventures on this island. And so one day, they decide that they're going to set out and go explore the island. And so they go into this little cave. Um, the tide is out. They go into the cave, and uh, they start digging around in the cave, and they find an arrowhead, okay? And then they dig a little bit more, or actually their dog digs, and he finds an old axe head, okay? And, um, and, and then they realize the tide's coming in, and they get out of the cave before they all drown, because that would be a really morbid way to end the book. Um, and there's Joe. So Joe's kind of there, and they're like, hey, Joe, look what we found. And Joe is really knowledgeable about Indian artifacts, and he starts like talking about these Indian artifacts, and, and the kids kind of have this conversation, like, Joe kind of knows a lot for a handyman, right? It's kind of interesting. And so then as the story goes on, um, uh, they say, hey, Joe, we want to make a museum of everything that we find on the island. It's going to be on the upstairs of our little barn here, and could you go to the library the next time you're in town and get us some books? And we, we kind of follow Joe as the readers, and Joe goes to the library to get some books, and it says that when he meets the librarian, he just starts listing off books from memory that they should have on all subjects. And then when he brings them back, he's just like flipping through these books with the kids and, and showing them all the like really important details and, and identifying the flowers and the birds and everything around the island in these books. And they're like, that's weird. Joe kind of knows a lot about nature. And so the story goes on 
and a, a man shows up on the island, and he says, I heard a rumor that there might be someone here who meets the description of someone I'm looking for. And I say, well, who is it? And they say, well, there's this guy who's this really famous archaeologist, and we all thought that he died. And, um, but, but there's been rumors that he's here on this island, um, and he, you know, he's got like a, a museum that he founded, and he's like, got all these artifacts that he found, and we're trying to see if this is him. And they describe Joe, and he's like, yeah, it sounds like the guy. But Joe's not on the island that day. So later they come back, as the story goes, turns out Joe is this famous uh, archaeologist. His real name is James Alden, and not only is he a really famous archaeologist, he's their cousin, okay? So he's the son of their uncle, okay? And so, why, how does this all play in? Um, well, today we're going to talk a little bit about the idea of gradual revelation. Gradual revelation, okay? So what is gradual revelation? Well, revelation is the process of revealing something, okay? You reveal who you are is revelation, okay? Um, gradual just means that it takes place over a longish period of time, okay? And so in our story, we have gradual revelation of Joe, don't we? At the beginning, Joe's just a handyman. We don't really know much about Joe. Oh, Joe knows a lot about Indians. Oh, Joe knows a lot about nature. Oh, Joe is an archaeologist. Oh, Joe is our cousin. And, and so as we go along, we realize that there's a lot more to Joe than we knew at the beginning. And this is also the story of God's relationship with his people, that God has revealed himself over time to his people, okay, um, in, a, in a gradual way. So the God that Noah knew and the God that Abraham knew and then the God that Moses knew, and now the God that we know, it's all the same God, but over time we've come to know God more and more and more and more and get to know his genuine character and who he really is. And, and we see that happening in this passage here, okay? And so the question that we're going to ask from this passage is, how should we live in light of where we come in the history of God's relationship with his people? And should we expect more of ourselves just because we were living as teenagers in 2018 than we would maybe expect of someone living 4,000, 6,000 years ago? Okay? So that's, that's a big question for us today. Well, we look again at our passage. Chapter 6 is kind of where we are. And the context of chapter 6, remember, is that there's suffering for Israel, the the Israelite foremen, they, they went to Pharaoh, please stop, we can't make the bricks. Pharaoh said, you're just being lazy. So they go to Moses, they say, you know, it's all your fault. So Moses goes to God and says, it's all your fault, and here's God's response. Okay, this is God's response, one through nine. Let's read it one more time. The Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. That just means travelers, as wanderers, not as people who actually belong to them. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant, my promise. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. 
And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And with great acts of judgment, I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the first question is this. What phrase do you hear being repeated as God talks to Moses and what he wants to tell to the people of Israel? What's kind of the big phrase that keeps being repeated? I am the Lord, right? Excellent. Okay, so the first point I want us to get from this is God wants us to hear him saying, I am the Lord. And, and what he's doing here is he's revealing who he is. Everything he says to Moses here is an act of revelation. This is who I am. This is who the Lord is. He, he begins it even by saying, you will now see what I will do to Pharaoh. In other words, just sit back and watch. Let me show you who I am. And I think there's a small point that was worth making, which is what we made last week, that God is letting things get harder for the Israelites. He's letting the suffering increase because it's going to heighten who he is when he brings them out of it. That by letting it get worse for them when he delivers them and he says, I am the Lord, they are going to know even more who he is. Now, this I am the Lord, it's repeated five times in this chapter, which is a lot of times in one chapter. It's repeated 17 times in the book of Exodus. Okay, so actually all of Exodus is about God showing us who he is. I am the Lord. And he does it in kind of two ways. First, at the beginning of chapter six, he does it by showing what he has done. Here's what I have done in the past. And then he tells them, and... Here's what I'm about to do. Use these things to know who I am. And, and really, that's how we relate to all people, right? That's how we get to know anybody. We get to know someone by learning more about their past and by experiencing who they are in the present. So I can tell you, even for me, having moved back from Israel, being gone for a number of years, there's people at the church who you know, didn't know me, didn't know me very well, didn't know me at all. And I'm thinking of one person in particular but uh, as I've kind of been around the church, they've gotten to know me better, and they've heard, oh, you like that band? I didn't know you liked that band. Or, oh, you lived there? I didn't know you lived there. Oh, you know how to do that? I didn't know you knew how to do that. And it's kind of just this process of getting to know me, right? It's rounding out who I am. But there's more to it than just that. There's also what I do in the present, right? How I treat this person in the present. And it'd be the same for you. You meet someone... As you get to know what they like and who they are in the past, that helps you know who they are. But you also get to know who they are when, let's say, they text you and say, hey, can I pray for you? I know you had a hard week. Or when they show up at your house and bring you Starbucks and say, I know you're studying for you know, your finals. Or I know you got park tests this week. I just wanted to treat you with this. Um, or when uh, your car breaks down, you know, if, if you're driving these days and, and they, they're the first one to say, oh, let me come and help you. And by the way, you can borrow my car. All of those things help you to see who this person really is, don't they? Right? They're, they're revelation of the character of this person and who they are. And so Moses, with God, 
God says, well, Moses, here's what I want you to tell the people in light of how they're feeling in the midst of their suffering and in light of how you're feeling, Moses, because you think I said I was going to deliver and now I haven't. Let me tell you a little bit more about who I am. Look who I was in the past, Moses. I showed up in the past and revealed myself as God Almighty. Okay, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. I showed myself to be a covenant God, a God who promises and keeps his promises. And I'm a God who hears Israel's groaning and remembers them. I remember the promises I've made. And look also at what I'm going to do in the future. I'm going to bring them out of Egypt. I'm going to deliver them from slavery. I'm going to redeem them with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I'm going to take them to be my people and I will be their God and I will bring them out from the burdens of Egypt and I'll bring them into a land and give it to them as a possession. And throughout this whole thing, what keeps being repeated is, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so the big idea in chapter six is God is showing us who he is. Here's who I am. And I want to zoom in on two statements in this passage that really help us to see what God is wanting us to see about who he is at this point in time in history. And the first is in verse three. So look at verse three. He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, do you guys remember what you said when you see LORD in all capital letters there, L-O-R-D, all in capitals? What name is being used in the Hebrew Bible? No? Good guess. Yahweh, okay. So when it says the LORD with all capital letters, that's the letters in Hebrew of Yahweh, okay? So what God is saying here is, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Now, this actually makes a a huge problem for us in trying to understand the Bible. And the reason we have a huge problem is because Yahweh is used over a hundred times in the book of Genesis. Okay? So we have to ask, wait a minute, God, you just said you didn't make yourself known as Yahweh, so why do we use Yahweh all throughout the book of Genesis? Um, And the answer, uh, there's a couple of possible answers, but I think what is probably most helpful here is saying that he hadn't revealed his full character to Abraham in the way that he's revealing his character now to Moses through the burning bush and through the exodus, okay? And and one of the words that he did use to describe himself to Moses was El Shaddai, God Almighty, okay? And, And I think John Piper does a good job of helping us understand this. Here's what he says. He says... Um, this is what God means by this. Only recently have I made known to you the meaning of my name, Yahweh, the meaning of my name, Yahweh. This is a special privilege that your forefathers never had. So he didn't say to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Yahweh means I am who I am. He didn't say that to them, okay? But look at what name I did reveal to them. God Almighty. With a name like that before them, they should have been filled with confidence in me. How much more then should you, Moses, since you've been given the fuller revelation of my character in the name Yahweh? If Israel learned the first grade lesson that their God is God Almighty, then surely now after the second grade lesson that God is I am who I am, they will be all the more courageous. Okay. So in other words, he's referring him back to these guys and saying, 
I'm still God Almighty. I'm still the God who is powerful and mighty. That hasn't changed, okay? Um, And so power is central in defining who God is. God is a God who cannot be stopped from accomplishing his purposes. He does whatever he pleases, and his power is more and superior to every other God and every other power. And we're just going to see that further defined throughout the book of Exodus, okay? The other thing that I want us to zoom in on is verse 7. Look at verse 7. In verse 7, he says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Now, that probably doesn't sound that shocking to us because we, we kind of have that idea in our minds, right? That we are God's people and he is our God. But this is the first time anything like this has ever been said in the course of history. So you have to see that what's happening here is God is doing something that no other God would have done at this time. He is adopting a group of people as his nation. Earlier, God said to Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, the Lord is, uh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And we said, that's where we get the idea that my dad can beat up your dad. God is saying, these are my kids and I'm going to beat you up if you mess with my kids, okay? Um, But here is the first time that he's saying, now Moses, go tell the people this. Go tell the people of Israel, I'm choosing you as my people. And why is this so shocking? One of the reasons it's so shocking is because it shows us that God is a personal God. And if you would have lived at this time, that would have just been such an unfathomable idea that a God would be personal with his people, that he is not only personal, but that he chooses to make a people his own. And not only does he choose to make this people his own, he chooses them based on what he's going to do for them, not what they have done to earn his favor. Okay, so he doesn't say, in light of your faithfulness to me or your prayers or your sacrifices to me, I will let you, you know, be my people and I will be your God so long as you keep it all up. Has Israel done anything to earn God's favor at this point? No. Okay, so God is just simply saying, I have chosen you, you will be my people and I am going to rescue you based on the fact that I've chosen you, not because you've done anything to deserve it. And so he tells them, I'm going to bring you out of slavery and deliver you and redeem you and give you land as a possession. Which... That's really, really important because all the other ancient cultures, you know, their beginning stories of, you know, how did life begin, all had the gods creating humans to serve them. Right. And so humans were pretty low on the scale of importance in the mind of the god. And here... Here is the God of Israel saying, I'm picking you, and I'm going to be your God, and, and that, that's just, we don't really appreciate how countercultural that really is. Yeah. We have to, in order to understand God. Exactly. Yep, exactly. Well, so Moses, in verse 9, look at verse 9, he goes and he tells these things to the people of Israel, right? Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, and here's how they responded. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Um, 
So let's ask this question. Let's, let's go through a series of questions. Why did, why did Moses have to tell all this to Israel? Well, he was doing it in response to their discouragement from chapter 5, right? And, and I think the whole purpose that Moses, God gave this to Moses was to instill confidence in the people, right? To encourage them. This is who your God is. God Almighty. You are his people. He is your God. He's chosen you. This is supposed to give them confidence that he is going to come and deliver them. Um, but how do they respond? They don't listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. So the question is, how are we supposed to see this verse? How are we supposed to understand this verse? Um, well, first, I think we need to understand it just on a, on a really realistic level. When we are in the midst of great suffering, it's hard to be optimistic, isn't it? It's hard to see like the cup half full when everything seems to be going wrong. It's hard to have any confidence that God is going to do anything when everything looks like it's against us. But I also think we should look at how God responds to the people when they act this way, right? So the people respond with a, they, they don't believe. And what's verse 10 say? So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. In other words, does God nail them on it? Does God say, you faithless generation, now I'm not going to do it? No, he doesn't, right? God just continues with the plan. Moses, they didn't listen to you. It's all right. Go to Pharaoh. Go to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. He doesn't chastise them. He doesn't call them out. And so why is it that they seem to have gotten off the hook so easy? Because we don't always see this reaction from God, do we? I mean, we just keep reading Exodus. We keep reading throughout um, the wilderness wanderings. And, and when the people of Israel do something wrong or completely like don't listen to God, there's consequences. So why here are there no consequences? Why do they get off the hook? Well, I think it comes back to this idea of general revelation. That God has not revealed himself yet to be the God who is able to deliver out of the hands of Egypt and out of the hands of the Egyptian gods yet. Okay, so they have no background knowledge to really believe that God can really do this. Right? Yeah, Moses, that's a great story about a God who could come and, and, and get us out of this situation, but I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. Right? That's probably the response of some of them. And God, in his grace, allows them to have that response. And so the question for us this morning is, well, does that mean that I can then have that same response? That's what I want us to ask. Is it appropriate for you and me to look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 9, and say, you know, things are pretty bad for me too, and I know God's supposedly good and all that stuff, but I, I just don't trust it. I don't see it. I'm a lot like the Israelites, and it's in the Bible, so I can be that way too, and God can just accept me just like he accepted Israel. No. I don't think we get off the hook that easy. And the reason is because we don't know Joe just as our handyman. We know that Joe is an archaeologist of a museum and he's our cousin. Because we have a whole lot more revelation of who God is 
than they did at this point. We know God much better than they did. We have Exodus right in front of us. So we can read, well, God did it. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. He destroys Pharaoh. He destroys Egypt. He pulls the people out of the land. He is almighty. Um, He is their God. He is patient and long-suffering and gracious with them. But we don't just see it in Exodus. We see it in an even greater way. We see who God is at the cross. We see what God is willing to do in order to win his people back. We see the extent to which he's willing to go by laying down his own life in place for ours. So we know our God not just as a God who delivers from human oppression, but we know God as a God who can deliver us from spiritual oppression. We know God who can not just pull humans out of what seems to be a really hopeless situation, like slavery in Egypt. We know that he's a God who can pull us out of the most hopeless situation, like slavery to sin and condemnation to hell. Okay, And then we've also seen God in a more powerful way because we've seen God show his power over death. We've seen the resurrection. We know there's an empty tomb. We know that our God is a God who has revealed himself, who is able to conquer sin and death and has conquered sin and death. So the appropriate response for us when we suffer and when we are in in suffering like the uh, Israelites under slavery is not to say we're not going to listen because our suffering is so hard. Um, but rather to say, we see what you have done, God, in the past, and we trust that you will continue to do it for us in the future. We have something incredibly convincing before us in the word of the Exodus, the cross, and the resurrection. We know that when things look bleak in the history, when things have looked bleak in history, we have every reason to believe that even when things look their bleakest and their worst, that God is sovereign, that he's almighty, and that he's in control, and we really have no excuse for faithlessness. So for us, in this day and age, in 2018, the only proper response is faith, is trusting in the Lord. Now, with that being said, I just want to say, I know that's not always easy. It's easy to kind of end the lesson and say, you just need to believe, you just need to trust. So I want to put before you, just as the last thing, um, this father from Mark chapter 9. You remember the father in Mark chapter 9? He had a son who was demon-possessed. And the demon would oftentimes cast the son into fire so that he would be um, suffering and burning in the fire. And he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, please save my son. And here's what Jesus says. If you can, all things are possible for me. All, or all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I think that's where we should end today because it's hard in the midst of suffering to believe. It's hard when life is really hard to say, God, I trust in who you are. But one thing we can always say is what the father says. I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to believe you even in the midst of the suffering. And and one more verse to put before you that's been on my mind is James 4.2. It says this, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. So when life is hard and you are struggling to believe that God is who he said he is, have you even asked God to put that faith in you to believe who he says he is and who he's shown himself to be? Let's close on that note and ask God to give us the faith we so desperately need. Lord, I do pray that.
I ask, Lord, that you would give us that faith we so desperately need. Give us that faith that we need so that we might believe and follow you, even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of our trials, to look at the cross, to look at the empty tomb, to look at the exodus, and to know that we serve a personal God who chooses people out of grace, an almighty God who is powerful to defeat all opposition, and a God who works in the midst of suffering to show us who he is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.